Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. I've been talking about LearnTrue, T-R-U-E, history.com. You've heard about it several times in the introduction of this podcast. So get on out to LearnTrueHistory.com to get history the way it was intended to be told with no PC, no Marxism, no progressivism. But not only that, I've got my new How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America, my forthcoming book. So I want you to go to LearnTrueHistory.com to sign up for that great program. But also, if you go to BlameHamilton.com, you can get in on some giveaways for my forthcoming book. So two websites for you, LearnTrueHistory.com and BlameHamilton.com. Get in on both of those things. LearnTrueHistory.com is the place to go to learn history the way it was intended to be told. BlameHamilton.com is where you learn about how Alexander Hamilton was the greatest villain in American history. This is The Brian McClanahan Show. Back to the Brian McClanahan Show. This is episode 107. Glad to have you back on the program. Glad to be here. Before we get started, as usual, if you do like this podcast, please share it around on social media. And you can find me on social media. You can uh, like me on uh, Facebook. Just look for Brian McClanahan. You can follow me on Twitter, at Brian McClanahan. And you can subscribe to my YouTube page. Again, just look for Brian McClanahan. If you go to my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com, at the top of the page, you will see all those social media buttons, so you can click on those, and it'll take you right to my social media accounts. Also on my webpage, if you give me an email address, I will give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders in American History, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. So go on and get that stuff too. And if you go to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support, you can throw a few pennies my way and help keep the Brian McClanahan show going, help keep the lights on, help uh, me continue to produce the podcast. Also, time is running out. Here it is. It is August 31st, and we only have about 18 days left in the contest or in the giveaway period for how Alexander Hamilton screwed up America. Just go on out to BlameHamilton.com, and if you follow the rules there, you pre-order a book, I'll give you an ebook, The Jeffersonian Solution. If you pre-order two or more, I'll give you an ebook, The Jeffersonian Solution, and a free six-lecture course on Alexander Hamilton. So time is running out. September 18th is the cutoff date for that. Once the book is released, those giveaways will go away. Not only that, if you do get involved in the contest, you will be entered into a drawing for a free master-level membership to libertyclassroom.com. So you can't, you can't beat that. I mean, that's a great deal. And who knows? You might win. If you already are a master level member at uh, Liberty Classroom, by the way, and you win the contest, you'll get an Amazon gift card. So uh, it's a win-win situation. Think about that. Think about going out and getting in the contest. Again, you've only got till September 18th. All right. All of that said, let's talk about the uh, topic for the day, which is John Taylor of Caroline. So I've been threatening to do a podcast on John Taylor of Caroline for, gosh, since for about a year. Uh, I, I've, I've talked about it a couple times. Yeah, I'm going to do one on that. And Today, I've decided to do that, get away from contemporary issues a little bit. I mean, sort of. You know, John Taylor is still contemporary. I know that times we think, well, these dusty, you know, old, uh, you know, moldy guys from the, uh, from the founding generation really don't matter anymore. And that was actually the premise and why I wrote the Politically Incorrect Guide to the Founding Fathers back in 2009. I looked around and thought, you know, these guys are going to come under attack. They already had. I mean, you know, think about... Um, 
Uh, I mentioned the last podcast, the 1990s. And in that film, Dazed and Confused, that I talked about, uh, there was a scene where these guys are in the, these students are in the 1970s in high school there, and the teacher starts talking about how the founding generation were just a bunch of old, dead, white male slave owners and how we shouldn't pay attention to them. And so I thought, you know, th- this is going to come back around. Uh, th- this, this attack on the founding generation isn't going away. Uh, people do talk about the founding generation negatively. And, uh, you know, now Thomas Jefferson's statue, uh, the Jefferson Memorial, is going to be contextualized uh, in Washington, D.C. Jefferson himself is now uh, up for the chopping block at the University of Virginia, of all places. The, the school that he founded, the students want to consider taking down the statue of Thomas Jefferson because of his attachment to slavery and, quote-unquote, white supremacy. Now again, we, we've already done. I've already done something on this. You know, where are we going to stop here? Are we going to stop with um, you know slave owners? Are we going to just start taking down every single monument to quote unquote white supremacy in America? Which would mean we take down just about every monument. In fact, yesterday uh, on the Abbeville Institute website, there was a piece by Clyde Wilson where he mentioned that the only acceptable president, if you start eliminating people because of their views, would be John Quincy Adams. Now. Uh, Clyde is not a fan of John Quincy Adams, and uh, it, it's kind of funny, you know, that this was uh, his his position. By the way, and I didn't mention this in the beginning, if you do like this podcast, I do podcast uh, once a week for the Abbeville Institute, so you can get three times a week of Brian McClanahan, not just the Brian McClanahan show, but also the Abbeville Institute podcast as well, and it's all things Southern, so if you just want to have my views on uh, the South and the Southern tradition, you can go over there and listen to that, and it does follow the material for the week for the uh, that were published on the Abbeville Institute website. So it's it's a review of those uh, five articles every week at abbevilleinstitute.org. Okay, so uh, I want to talk about John Taylor, um, and John Taylor is contemporary. And I think back to the Occupy Wall Street people and this attack on banking in America that was so popular uh, just a few years ago. And a lot of these people didn't realize it, but you know, the first people to really attack uh, central banking in America were the Jeffersonians. Now, they didn't do it in the way the Occupy Wall Street and the George Soros crowd would do it. Uh, These people weren't out there, uh, you know, the founding generation weren't Marxists, for example. They weren't even close. Uh, And so they wouldn't have been in favor of the attitude and the policies of these Occupy Wall Street Antifa people who are going around beating people up and also acting like a bunch of spoiled children, which is exactly what uh, this group is all about. Uh, Petulant children in that way. I mean, they're throwing fits and they have their feelings hurt. They're just a bunch of two-year-olds. But uh, we, we do see in the Jeffersonians this suspicion of the fusion of organized finance, meaning central banking, and big government. And if there is anyone who is more Jeffersonian than Jefferson himself, it was John Taylor of Caroline. Now, you can make the case that there were others that were uh, more Jeffersonian than Jefferson, particularly that old Republican crowd. There's a very good book on the old Republicans, Norman Rizjord's The Old Republicans. Uh, and there are a number of purists who would even be upset about Jefferson's movement away from his own principles. Uh, and so they were known as the quids in the Congress. And so, you know, during the time when Jefferson was president and he favored the embargo, 
Uh, these quids were not very happy about Jefferson's administration. They thought he was acting too much like a nationalist, which is why Alexander Hamilton in 1801, after the 1800 election, urged his Federalist colleagues to put Jefferson in office rather than Aaron Burr, because he said, look, Jefferson's going to be one of us ultimately. He's not going to rock the boat. He's not going to disrupt everything in the federal government. And Hamilton was pretty much right about that. I mean, Jefferson went in and his second term was a complete disaster in terms of principles. Uh, now, his first term was pretty good, but uh, Congress was driving the agenda, as they should. And Jefferson was symbolically downgrading the uh, stature of the, of the executive branch. But uh, by his second term, he had pivoted much more toward a nationalist position. So there were people, though, that were much more principled than Thomas Jefferson, much more interested in a limited central government, and more importantly, uh, breaking that alliance between banking and finance. And there was no one better at that than John Taylor of Caroline. If you have not read any of John Taylor of Caroline's uh, pamphlets, his books, you are missing out. If you do read them, you are in for a treat. Now, people often cr criticize Taylor, saying that, well... Uh, these things are too hard to read. Uh, you can't get through them. It's like slogging through mud. And he is fairly verbose. Uh, when, you, when you read John Taylor of Caroline, it's not something you're just going to sit down and whip through in a couple of hours and think, yeah, that was just a light, easy read. John Taylor of Caroline is, uh, he is an 18th century writer, early 19th century writer. So his, uh, his language is dense, but you will get so much out of it. And he's so funny at times uh, that uh, you know, you'll you'll find yourself laughing out loud when you read his stuff. He he is he is very very good at making his point. So who was John Taylor of Caroline first? And and by the way, I wrote a chapter on John Taylor of Caroline in my uh, politically incorrect guide to the founding fathers. And he is also featured prominently in how Alexander Hamilton screwed up America in the second half of the book, where I get into John Marshall and Joseph Story and. Uh, also, Hugo Black. He's, he's very, uh, very much part of the chapter on John Marshall. So who was this John Taylor of Caroline character? Well, he was, uh, of course, a Virginia planter, born into a, a wealthy Virginia family. Uh, he lived at a place called Hazelwood, and he actually pre preferred to be at Hazelwood more than anywhere else in the United States. I mean, this was his country, and you found that with a lot of these Virginia planters and Southern planters, I, I've mentioned Nathaniel Macon before, and I'll probably do a podcast on Macon at some point as well. But, you know, Macon only checked his mail once a month. Uh, his plantation was his country, and in so many ways, that was John Taylor of Caroline. Uh, these people were rooted in a place, and that matters. You know, we have such a transient society now. Uh, people move around for jobs all the time. Uh, people, uh, you know, I live in a town that's predominantly military, and so these people come from all over the world, not just the United States, but all over the world, and uh, we have a lot of people living in this town that are not from here originally. They're from somewhere else, uh, and so we have a transient society. Uh, you know, we, we buy a house, and a few years later, that house isn't suitable anymore, so we buy another house, we move to somewhere else. Uh, and what you found in the founding generation is that people weren't as transient. You know, you could find people that lived in the same town and born in the same town and died in the same town. 
Uh, you did have some movement, of course. Uh, the, the frontier provided that, and people would, and, and de Tocqueville talked about this, how people would, once they got on the frontier, they would build a house and then not even finish it and then move on again. Uh, you did have some of that uh, transience there, but uh, you did have, in New England and in the South and in the Mid-Atlantic states, you had people that were much more uh, rooted in a place. Uh, and that place became, uh, you know, started to define them. Uh, and I think that's important. You know, as we look at American society and we start talking about cosmopolitanism and all these things and people thinking about, uh, you know, the world around them. And this is where my think locally, act locally uh, mantra comes from. It's being rooted in a place. It's this place is yours. Sweep around your back door. Take care of your, of your kith and kin, your family, your community, and all of the stuff around you won't matter. It's like you've got this little, this, uh, you know, R15 insulation around you from all the things going on in society. All those things won't matter if you're taking care of where you are and where you're from first. And John Taylor knew that better and spoke of that better than just about anyone in the founding generation. So here he's got, uh, you know, he's from um, from Hazelwood, his plantation, um, and. He serves in the government several times, uh, most importantly in the state legislature. He served in the state legislature in 1779 uh, to 18, seven, I'm sorry, 1781, from 1783 to 1785, and then from 1796 to 1800. And he also served in the U.S. Senate uh, from 1793 to 1794 in 1803, and again from 1822 to 1824. But that was it. He was never actually... Uh, he never served a full term in the Senate. These were expired terms, and so Taylor was sent to the Senate by the Virginia legislature to serve out these expired terms uh, of, of another person. So he was in the government at times, most importantly in the state legislature. Uh, he did serve in the U.S. Senate. And in one of these particular uh, times in the Senate, that first time he served in the Senate, there's the very famous meeting between John Taylor of Caroline and Oliver Ellsworth and Rufus King. These two New Englanders cornered him in a cloakroom and said, John, look, um, we think this union's a bad idea. Uh, what do you think about New England secession? And Taylor was shocked. Now, one of the things he was afraid of is that if New England pulled out of the union, they would form a commercial alliance with the British and they would punish the South. So at that point, he wasn't really interested in New England secession because he thought it would be a bad deal for North America. Now, I'm sure, though, had Taylor lived to the 1850s, he would have been in favor of Southern secession. Taylor was interested in decentralization. He was interested in the Federal Republic of Independent States. And so, in any way that would make decentralization popular, Taylor would support it. Um, and, you know, he wrote about this, too. He, he wrote about this meeting, and again, he was shocked, but he thought that the reason New Englanders wanted out was for fairly selfish and nefarious purposes, uh, which is why New Englanders wanted secession to begin with. I mean, you look at the history of secession in America, and it's, a, it's an interesting study, and uh, how New Englanders were first and foremost the, the first secessionists uh, once the Constitution was written. They continued to favor secession, all the way up until the 1830s uh, as, as a political motivation until the South started agitating for it, and then they were for the nation, quote-unquote. Now, the abolitionists in New England still continued to favor secession, which is why it's surprising that so many of them rallied around the war. 
1861 because it would have been easy just to let the South go and then they would have had their free republic. Uh, of course, there were other secession movements, and uh, maybe I'll do a podcast just on some of these strange or you know odd secession movements. One of my favorites is the uh, the Pap Singleton movement, uh, which was uh, a a Black American secession movement in the late nineteenth uh, century. You had these; um, it was called the Exodus movement. You had uh, Black leaders favoring moving to an area and then trying to break that area off from the United States. And they moved to the to the area of Oklahoma at one point. They were going to try to have some type of secessionist republic in the middle of uh, what became the United States. Of course, at that time, Oklahoma was the Indian Territory, and uh, they thought, well, maybe we can get this territory. There's still, and there still is a, a you know a, a current in American politics dealing with that. But maybe I'll do a, a, a podcast on that at some point. So when Taylor was living at Hazelwood, he became the pamphleteer of Jeffersonian republicanism, and, and he wrote several books. Um, most importantly, in my mind, uh, an inquiry into the principles and policy of the government of the United States, and also his editor uh, in the How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America. I talk about uh, construction construed and constitution uh, constitutions vindicated. That's the book that I focus on there. Uh, and also his Tyranny Unmasked, which was uh, an anti-tariff book. The, all these books are very good. Um, and he always had great quotes. So uh, let, me, let me read. I'm, I'm going to go through some of these because I think they're just fantastic. So in 1818, Taylor wrote, quote, If agriculture is good and the government bad, we may have wealth and slavery. If the government is good and the agriculture bad, liberty, and poverty. So Taylor believed that only by balancing the two would an independent society be secured, and since agriculture was the most common interest of the country, it should be protected from what he labeled the stock jobbers and the paper aristocracy. Now, those are great terms, stock jobbers and the paper aristocracy. Taylor and the Jeffersonians, particularly the agrarians, looked at wealth as something tangible, something you could hold, something real, and that was land. Uh, whereas these northern merchants, these speculators, were getting rich on shuffling paper around. That was it. They were paper jobbers. You shuffle some paper, move some stocks, and so you had this stock society. People like John Law uh, from Scotland, you know, the, the very famous or infamous banker who, who helped bankrupt the French economy at one point, favored a paper economy. Only stocks, only paper. You didn't need any real wealth anymore. This has created the, of course, John Law is famous for the Mississippi bubble, which again, just about bankrupt France, or did bankrupt France. But you didn't need anything but paper. Uh, and so uh, people like Taylor were saying, no, no, you need real wealth, whether it's precious metals, you know, a sound currency, or land, these things were essential to maintaining a vibrant economy. And if you did not have them, you were in real trouble. So you had to have a sound basis of wealth. And again, agriculture, an agricultural society where you had free landowners, this created a situation where you had independent people. You can't have independent people unless you have people that are not in debt, unless you have people that uh, are not interested in uh, stocks and paper. 
Now, he said, quote, a master capitalist would turn nine-tenths of the sound yeomanry of the United States into swindlers and dependents and reduce them to the daily bread of the industrial age. He says, quote, an aristocracy is nowhere agrarian, and where it has taken deep root, an agricultural interest has ceased to have any influence in the government. So think about that, too. Taylor is often called an aristocrat. Well, he's saying, no, no, I'm not an aristocrat. I'm an agrarian. I'm an agriculturalist. There's a difference. An aristocrat is someone who lives on the wealth of others. Someone who's a paper jobber, a stock jobber. Someone who has an artificial economy, artificial money. Land is not that. So Taylor was looking at a system. He saw a system coming in America where the, the majority of the people would be reduced to, as he said, quote, swindlers and dependents. He said the government was heading toward a consolidated empire ruled not by a king, but by something far worse, a president who used patronage and government handouts to centralize power in the name of the general welfare. This was Taylor's position. Of course, he has been proven correct. This is exactly what we have. Now, interestingly enough, John C. Calhoun, who the old Republicans did not view as a purist, they didn't think that Calhoun was one of them, uh, ultimately placed the blame of presidential power at the feet of Congress because it was Congress who gave the president this much power and this much authority. So he was very suspicious of government power and what it was going to do. But more importantly, he was suspicious of Congress for giving the president too much power. In this case, uh, Taylor was pointing out, well, the president is going to get this power and it's going to be a disaster. Of course, Taylor was also fearful of taxation. He said, quote, oppressive taxation by law monopoly, direct and indirect, to create or sustain the system of paper and patronage proposes nothing uh, rebutory for reducing a people to the condition of asses, except an aristocracy to provide for them a succession of burdens. The lion personified in the working man would become cowardly and stupid if Congress implemented Alexander Hamilton's economic system of excessive taxation on agricultural products for the common good of society. So, there is the lion from The Wizard of Oz. And again, it would be fun to do a podcast on The Wizard of Oz. Maybe I'll do that at some point. Uh, he said this, quote, While whilst a paper system pretends to make a nation rich and potent, it only makes a minority of that nation rich and potent at the expense of the majority, which it makes poor and impotent. Which is true. So you have a situation where you know Taylor sounds very much like an Occupy Wall Street guy, a Marxist. He's not, though. He's saying what we need are independent people. And when you have oppressive taxation, you can have you can you can have benevolent people. He said that a nation oppressed by taxes can never be generous, benevolent, or enlightened. A nation oppressed by taxes can never be those things. And when anyone who, who pays a lot of taxes will tell you it's painful to write these checks. Uh, whereas 50% of the American public does not pay an income tax, 50% does, and out of that 50%, um, you have uh, a situation where 
the, the top part of that 50% pays most of the taxes. So this on the surface looks like, well, Americans aren't paying a lot of taxes. Simply not true. They may not pay any federal income tax, but just go and fill up your car and you're paying 30 cents a gallon in taxes. Go to the store and you pay sales taxes. Uh, you know, uh, pay your cell phone bill and you're paying a tax. Go get your licensing fees. All these things are taxes. And while some of the population will get a tax refund, even when they don't pay any taxes, the productive class in society is burdened with excessive taxation. In some states, because of state and local taxes, people are paying over 50% of their income at a certain level in taxes. I mean, this, is, this is just crazy. If you're self-employed, you have to pay that self-employment tax uh, of essentially 15%, which is an income tax. And then you pay your income tax on top of that. Now, when you go to work for someone else, you get you get that 15% cut in half because your employer pays that other that other uh, 7.5%. But still, that means the employer is paying that 7.5% tax. So 15% of your wage, what you earn, is off the top taken from you by the general government. 15%. And then that doesn't even include your income tax, your state tax, your sales taxes, your, your uh, all your fees and licenses and all the other little taxes you pay. So we are taxed to death in the United States. And, uh, and things like tariffs, which uh, uh, Taylor was very critical of, uh, was is another form of taxation because the the industrialist is going to pass that tariff that tax off to the consumer, so you're paying that tax as well. Taylor said this: tariffs seize quote upon the bounty taken by law from agriculture, and instead of doing any good to the actual workers in wood, metals, cotton, or other substances, they created an artificial aristocracy at the expense of the workers in earth to unite with government in oppressing every species of useful industry. He was concerned, uh, not about capitalism, and he didn't mention this term capitalism. People can look at this and say, oh, that guy's a Marxist. He wasn't concerned about free market, free markets at all. He was concerned about the fusion of industry, finance, and government. Uh and so when you look at that, when you look at federally funded internal improvements, when you look at banks, when you look at tariffs, um, he says that, quote, this was the evil moral principle in which all hereditary and hierarchical orders have been founded. The logarithm of patronage, he called it. Uh, it became the politician's tool to perpetuate the usurpation of private wealth earned by honest labor. And what he was afraid of is that as government became fused with these interests, they would start enriching themselves. And you, I mean, look, you find that in Washington, D.C. You find it in your state legislatures. If anyone goes into politics and they aren't wealthy, if they come out and they still aren't wealthy, then they did something wrong. Because this is essentially what politicians do. They build up their own personal coffers. They look at these things, they look at legislation to benefit themselves. Uh, you know, Harry Reid uh, was infamous for this before he retired, uh, where he made millions of dollars for his own family members on shady deals. Now, he was never brought to trial for this. Nothing ever happened because he, he was clever enough 
not to uh, make it obvious he was doing this, but this is what people do uh, when they get in government. They start enriching themselves. And of course, just by becoming politicians, they are enriching themselves because they live on the backs of taxpayers. And that money they, to them becomes their money. All the money that governments spend, their little pet projects to keep themselves in power, patronage, as Taylor called it, is there to enrich themselves and their friends, and not just that, to keep themselves in power, which in turn also enriches themselves. Because here, they, they get nice fat salaries uh, with perks and benefits, and so they stay in office. Now, it's not so much at the state level, because you know we still have the citizen legislators, but uh, there was a major push to make uh, you know state uh, legislator salaries very high, uh, to increase the salaries of Congress, to ensure they have more money. Of course, Washington D.C. is a very expensive place, and outfitting a staff and all these other things does cost money. So it's it's very difficult. But uh, it, it's clear that the amount of money that sucked into Washington D.C. could be better spent somewhere else. You know, we actually have our tax system upside down. The state should require more in taxes than the general government because the states are the ones who are really supposed to be doing all the things that Americans want their government to do. Now, we can we can argue about whether that's a good idea or not. Should government do all these things? But you look at all the things that we ask for the general government to do, the state government should be doing all those things. And so our tax burden should be higher at the state and local level if we're going to have high taxes than it would be at the general government because that government should only pay uh, for the common defense of the United States, which would be military spending, and what's good for the whole of the Union, which I guarantee you is not most of what the general government does. It's not good for the Union. It's good for someone's pet project in their state. Uh, and this is where Taylor was very critical of federally funded internal improvements, because they didn't benefit the whole Union. They benefited one state or a group of states at the expense of taxpayers in other states. So this is where Taylor was so was so prescient. Um, he said this, quote, A power to take from a nation and give to itself is the strict definition of civilized tyranny. Uh, I mean, exactly. Uh, you, you read so many things. As you go through Taylor uh, and you, uh, you read much of what he wrote and you think, my gosh, this is exactly what we have. Uh, he, Taylor feared paper systems, which meant banking and commercial speculation, because they bestowed exorbitant wealth at a level dangerous to society. Uh, so this is where Taylor, again, was someone who understood. He could see ahead. He could see the situation brewing in the United States. He could see what was coming. He was prescient in a way that really not many others of the founding generation were. I mean, I think the founding generation knew what would happen with government. I mean, Franklin said this, you know, eventually we're going to get an elected king. We're going to have it. Hamilton said it too. This is why in 1787 he advocated just getting one. So we're going to get there. Might as well just have one from the beginning uh, and skip over all the, the heartache and the process by which we get it. We'll just get the king now. We'll vote it in. Of course, the founding generation, you know, the rest of the founding generation were shocked by that. But uh, in that way, Hamilton was saying this is what we're going to have. Of course, much because of his constitutional machinations, which is what the book How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America is all about. 
But this is what people feared, and Taylor could see it coming. He could see it coming in the way the government was spending money, the way the government was taxing, the way the government was passing legislation, unconstitutional legislation, at the expense of the federal republic. He could see all these things coming, and yet no one listened. Though you could make a case, and I think you can make a very good case, that the United States, uh, up until... um, the uh, war in 1861 was generally Jeffersonian in ideals. Uh, And it was only after that that you had a major transformation of the Union uh, from a Union to an empire and to a consolidated nation state. Uh, So that's really where, I mean, this is where I became interested in that war, not because of all the stuff that we wrangle over all this, in my mind, uh, you know, just pedantry. it's, it's all deflection from what the real reason why the war is important, which was the transformation of the United States into a consolidated nation-state empire uh, from that point forward. Uh, the political ramifications of the war, not necessarily why the war came or what, what were the causes of the war, uh, all those things. I mean, that's, that's, some, that's fun stuff to talk about, uh, but the impact of the war is much more important. So I hope you enjoyed this little section on John Taylor. I think that he's one of these forgotten founders that everyone needs to know about. If more people knew about John Taylor in the true principles of Jeffersonianism, I think you could find that you would have a lot of common ground among many Americans uh, on things that we we would agree on if more people thought like John Taylor of Caroline. Uh, We would be interested in independent people, though, of course, the uh, Marxists and the Antifa people are interested in just beating people up and taking their stuff and not really in a, in a real conversation about what would be good for the American public as a whole, if there is such a thing as the American public. And I tend to agree with uh, Taylor as well that there is no American nation. Uh, it's like utopia for utopians. It just doesn't exist. Anyways, I uh, hope you enjoyed this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. I'll see you next time.